our new telescopes for 2024 on episode 387 of season two of the actual astronomy podcast i'm chris and joining me is shane i assure you this is not a new co-host i just don't have much of a voice we are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody even those of us with bad throats who enjoy going out under the stars how was your holiday observing astronomy shane fantastic um as as i mentioned on the previous episode for the um, observer's calendar for january um, our weather here has been outstanding this winter um you know we have daytime highs of uh usually positive single digits celsius which is bizarre for december well now january um and it's been clear like clear all day and clear all night so over the holidays here, I, I was uh, on vacation for about almost two weeks and literally like every day uh, was was observing, you know, whether it was solar or uh, nighttime stuff. Um, it was really, really nice. Um, and there was a moon in the sky basically the whole time, which, you know, was okay. I enjoyed looking at that a little bit, but also um, just some of the planets and kind of what I did was just very leisure observing where I didn't bother with lists or even making, uh, observation notes. Uh, I just went out and soaked up photons without any real plans. And I, I just loved it looking at, you know, well, as I mentioned the planets and the moon, but also just some prominent open clusters and Messier objects from my backyard. Nice. Yeah. How about you? I went to, to Nova Scotia and visited my family and to pick up my seasonal virus. Um, and I, I decided not to take a scope or binoculars or anything with me. I, I really just really needed a break. Um, have some other stuff in life that has been very changing and stressful. And I was like, yeah, we'll just take a break. And uh, got there at two, one or two o'clock in the morning. And man, it was like the best sky I have ever seen. Tourists hanging out over the North Atlantic, um, uh, Hyades and Pleiades just set against a, like a, like a black tar type background. I mean, it was so, so dark. And uh, then the following night was, was even better. And even though I, I decided to not do any astronomy and just get some proper rest because I hadn't had so much proper rest in the past couple months. I decided to get up in the middle of the night, dug out my old 10 by 50 binoculars. And uh, man, those are terrible binoculars. I can't believe I ever even started astronomy with those. Um, and I took a look at, because uh, it was like early in the morning, Chris was up. I took a look at the Sombrero Galaxy, the Messier 104, and and then M35, 38, 36, 37. They were sort of over into the... Uh, western sky and then just did some general panning around it was just just beautiful and met up with dave chapman uh, a few days later uh took him out for lunch as a as a thank you not only for coming on the podcast doing lots of those uh stars you should know um but also uh, dave and i collaborate lots of other stuff but anyway dave was saying that that night was like one of the best nights that that they've ever had in nova scotia apparently hmm. wow um it's too bad you didn't have a, a telescope, I guess, because, you know, those nights are quite rare. Oh, yeah. It was just absolutely, it was one of those, it was still, it was transparent, but I mean, absolutely like the best. And uh, yeah, a lot of uh, long-term observers, I guess, were at the observatory there and uh, had said that, yeah, it was absolutely one of the best nights they've ever had. And I, I believe it. Like, I've done lots of observing there and it was absolutely spectacular. 
Um, I only did like an hour or so because I really, really had to focus on getting some proper sleep in that and trying not to get sick. Uh -huh. And I'm getting sick anyway. But cool thing was that uh, my nephew Devin and I, we met up a few times. He's 11 years old. And last year, he dug out the ST80, which is an 80 millimeter F5 refractor. I'd sent down to my other nephew, Max, and uh, I sent that down as a present during the pandemic um, just for fun. But Max never really got the astronomy bug. He's a bit of a math person and, uh, you know, uh, would rather sit and do mathematics than go out in the cold and look at the telescope. Whereas Devin, he's a type of, type of guy that likes to go out and uh, sit in a chair looking through a telescope for a long period of time, strangely enough. So it was pretty good. He did a, Devin did a sketch of Jupiter and uh, he did one of the solar system and the planets and the major moons and uh, framed it up. And plan is put that in the observatory once we're ready for it. Mm, that's awesome. I like that uh, uh, idea. That's really nice. Yeah, it's too bad. It had sort of a crappy cloudy observing session the time we could get together to put the telescope up because, I mean, he's 11 and it's Christmas and you know, he's, he's got brothers and sister and, uh, yeah, I mean, and parents are busy. My, my nephew, uh, my other nephew, well, like Devin is my nephew's son, but my nephew, Andrew <laughs> is not really all that much younger than I am really. So he's, uh, yeah, he's only about 15 years younger than me. So anyway, so he has kids and I just call them all my, my nephews and they just call me their uncle and whatever. Um, but anyway, he, he has like a full-time job. He's a plant manager for, uh, for, uh, a small plant down in Nova Scotia, but he, uh, on the side, just for fun, he helps run a Christmas tree lot. <laughs> so Christmas is a busy time for them. Oh yeah. Yeah. He'd be hopping for sure. Yeah. So anyway, um, it was fun. It was so much fun hanging out with Devin and, uh, he's like a little encyclopedia of astronomy and, uh, it was just so cool and sat around, told a bunch of corny jokes and uh, went out and he, um, I held a red light. He, he toured me around the sky last year. I toured him around the sky this year. He kind of toured me around the sky, even though we had lots of clouds, but just sort of hopping from, you know, whatever star we could see to the moon, to Jupiter. And um, yeah, it was really neat. I, I held a red light while he did a sketch of the moon. He was drawing a whole pile of the craters at Mare and uh, did a nice sketch of Tico, um, the crater Tico. Uh, and, I, you know, it's pretty cool, pretty cool to, uh, you know, to see uh, a young person doing that. I, I thought that was really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice moment uh, to, to be had. And I always enjoy observing, um, you know, with family that has interest or, you know, at public events, when you show um, whether it's planets or the moon or even deep sky objects to somebody, whether they're young or not, I guess. Mm. Um, but young folks seem to be, uh, maybe a little more amazed or impressed with what they're seeing through the telescope. And, you know, I sort of vicariously wonder like, what can they see? Like, you know, with young eyes, um, cause I didn't really get serious, uh, into astronomy until, oh, I guess maybe my mid to late twenties. Um, and you know, I, I think I have pretty good eyes and I did then too, but you know, young eyes are, uh, I guess famous for, for being able to see better than us. And I'm always curious if they can see a little bit more than what I see. 
And the the really neat part with Devin is he's starting to sketch. Mm-hmm. And so you can you can actually get some of that because his sketching is um, you know, it's pretty good, actually. And um so he was sketching um one of the uh moon transits on Jupiter. Mm. And then he was also um just like sketching the Pleiades and the moon. And it was really cool. Like he he picks up the detail really quick. And like he's a he's a good sketcher, like he's sketching very fast at the eyepiece, which is kind of the trick, right? And then uh yeah, kind of I'm hoping to encourage that. So I ended up um because I was there sort of before Christmas, really, and I, I was able to go out to the store and I, I went and bought him like a proper little sketching kit, um, like what I started with, because he's just been using like a leftover notebook from school and like a star Wars pencil and that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I bought him like a proper sketching pencil and sketching book and, and that kind of stuff. And I'd taken one of my spare red lights because for some reason I thought he had a red light, but he didn't. So I just, I just gave him like the red light that I took and a couple of little things like that. Nothing, nothing too expensive, but, uh, you don't really need that to, uh, to be doing this. So yeah, it's, it's kind of cool kind of cool to uh to see that the other thing he was picking up which i was really surprised about because he's just using the um the 80 millimeter f5 and he'll switch between like the full aperture and then stopping it down to whatever it is like 40 or 45 millimeters okay and it has like hits that little cutout cap and uh he was asking me because i i'd read about these but i haven't really seen them is um Back in November, I think early December, there was a couple new like dark markings in the bands of Jupiter. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was just asking me about these. Like he had just picked them up and he said, yeah, I was like looking at Jupiter and there was these dark spots and what are those kind of thing? I'm like, well, you're doing pretty good if you're seeing those. So yeah, wow. I think, I think he sounds like to- a natural. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, you you were then you messaged me. You had some pretty interesting news, Shane. You uh, picked up uh, a new uh, telescope over the holidays, or or have it coming to you? I guess maybe is the proper way to put it. Yeah, it was kind of unexpected, um, but I was perusing our uh, site or the site that you and I have talked about in the past um, by ee.jp. So. This is uh, just a quick recap. This is a website that is a sort of a broker um, for North Americans that wish to purchase things on the Yahoo Japan auction site. Um, like a proxy site, I think they call it. Yeah. Yeah. So they do like the uh, language translations. Um, and then, you know, if you win an auction in Japan, that seller ships the parcel to buy EE who then arranges shipping with you as the buyer to come overseas. And, uh, you know, they, they charge you some small fees for that, but it's an interesting way to, uh, get access to a different market. And sometimes there's uh, unique or different, uh, equipment there than what we typically see here in North America and probably even Europe. So it's a, it's a neat resource. So occasionally I'll go on there to see if there's anything, uh, of interest. And something that's been on my list for quite a while, uh, popped up and that's the, uh, Borg 90 FL. And, uh, I was, I was the winning bidder. It was a, a pretty good deal. Actually, I was quite thrilled. 
And uh, the telescope will come here, I think, in two days exactly from this point, uh, January 2nd. And uh, I, I, yeah, I'm just super excited to get it. Um, the reason it's been on my list for uh, a long time is it's it's probably the lightest uh, refractor that you can get that is of uh, I'll say like kind of reasonable aperture. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that this thing, you know, with rings and you know, kind of everything ready to go, is still under like five pounds. Like I think yep. it's like a three or four pound telescope. It's exceptionally yeah. light. It's probably I don't know. Um, in my research, it's probably the best grab and go or travel telescope that you can get because mm-hmm. again, it's you have ninety millimeters of aperture. And, you know, normally at least, you know, for me, if I was to pack a telescope to say, you know, uh, fly with or travel great distances, I'm probably taking like a 60, maybe a 70 millimeter telescope, um, just because they're light enough that you can also then have a a lightweight mount and a lightweight tripod and, and, you know, be happy with the setup. But this Borg 90, because of how light it is, I can essentially use all of that lightweight stuff, the mount, the tripod, the backpack, and this, this 90 millimeter telescope will ride on that quite well. And will uh, you know, pack into the backpack quite well. And I have almost a four inch telescope then to take with me wherever I go. Um, the other kind of neat part is it's a fairly fast refractor. I think it's like F 5.6, if Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. So, you know, you can get some relative, uh, wide field views with this thing. It, it, uh, like out of the box will take two inch eyepieces. Um, and I also have a Borg, uh, tele extender, uh, 1.4 times that will work with this telescope. Um, so, you know, one of the complaints with it is that some of the edge performance, uh, you know, suffers a bit just because it is such a fast scope. Um, but with this 1.4 times tele extender, it cleans everything up quite well from what I've read and, uh, gives me kind of another option of how I can use this thing. And, um, yeah, I guess more to come. We'll see what it's like when it arrives here in a couple of days. I really think the, uh, 30 millimeter UFF, that's going to be the two inch optic of choice in this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too, just cause it's a lighter two inch eyepiece. Yeah. And it, it is so flat. Like Mike and I were testing it a bit in, in my F six Borg and, uh, man, it was perfect to the edge. Now I know you've got a shorter focal length focal ratio is about the same, but we end up getting, um, more field curvature in, in the, the shorter focal lengths. But I I think that eyepiece is going to perform very, very well in it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Um, it, it adds a bit of a conundrum in that it doesn't fit well with my current lineup of telescopes. (laughs) So if I really like it, I'll have to probably reevaluate what stays here and what gets listed for sale. Um, cause essentially I, I bought the 71, uh, the Borg 71 FL for my main travel telescope, because again, Mm -hmm. it's super light. Um, as you know, I think most of our listeners know Borgs are very modular, so you can also just unscrew components, you know, to take the glass or the, you know, like the kind of the pricey part, put that in your carry on in a well-protected case. And then, you know, the tube and, and, uh, focuser can just go in the suitcase. 
Um, but anyway, you know, I have the Borg 71 as my travel scope, but you mm -hmm. know, this 90 may end up replacing it. Um, so I don't know. I'll see how it goes. I love the 71 FL. So if the 90 FL is anywhere close to that performance, it's going to be a fantastic telescope. Yeah. I mean, I, I've read a lot of reviews on it and I believe that, uh, the optical prescription, I could be wrong, is very similar, if not identical to the old Takahashi uh, FS90. Well, I think that um, like it's similar, but there is a difference with, um, I don't know if it's spacing. the air gap between yeah, the elements. It is, yeah, the air gap, yeah. Yeah, because I think the knock on the Sky 90 was, um, would it get pinched optics when it cooled? Or there was something when something it cooled. Like that. Yeah, but they that, eventually fixed it, eh? Oh, okay. Okay. And, and so I think they, they just carried over the fix and see, I, I really like that idea because you take a telescope that was in production kind of, you know, as, as many telescopes have over the years, uh, maybe had a bug and then, um, they fixed it and they kept it in the lineup, which, you know, sort of kudos to Takahashi for doing that since they didn't just drop it, like yeah. it might, might be the tendency for others. So they fixed it. But then I think because there was so many of those ones that, that did have the problem kicking around, I think that telescope ended up with a worse reputation than, mm -hmm. um, you know, that otherwise, you know, perhaps could have had. And then I, I almost think that there's been a bit of carryover to the Borg Nani from that and that people have this expectation that it's uh, maybe going to have some some challenges or or whatever. Because you, if you read the, re, you know, reports and reviews, Sometimes people like just aren't in love with it. So mm -hmm. I'm really, really curious to see, but it's always been high on my list because I did spend some time with one of the fixed sky nineties mm. and, uh, quite a bit of time actually. And, uh, even though my, my friend who had it, he changed the nameplate out with one of the nameplates from a Tasco, but that's another story. <laughs> but, uh, so he'd call it his Tasco, even though it was a talk, um, but it was beautiful telescope. I just loved it. Um, you know, not like the best color correction because it's so fast, but on deep yeah. sky wide field, it was just, it was just incredible. And I, I remember that that's the telescope that really solidified my love for the little wide field refractors, just because like seeing how short and stubby that scope was and, and the views that it provided, cause it's, it's almost a four inch telescope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, it, it brings in the light, like you were saying, and to have that, you know, in a package that, like you said, is under four pounds, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm really excited to, uh, start observing with it. Um, some of the reports that I've read too, like when the 90 FL was released by Borg, um, I don't know if there was issues with some of the early ones or if it was just some people, are more sensitive to the field curvature, but there's a, a few folks on cloudy nights that had it and, and returned it because they weren't thrilled with it. But, um, it seems like since the early days passed, like I haven't really read any negative reports of it. So yeah. I don't know if there was something in production that they had to clean up or again, if it was just a, you know, a, a, a sort of personal preference thing that some of the, uh, early, uh, buyers, um, just decided it wasn't for them. Well, I mean, once you do, like, and you and I know this, is that once you do get under that uh, sort of magical 600 millimeter or so focal length, you you do get some significant field curvature. It's just mm -hmm. it's just physics. Mm -hmm. 
but you know, you and I live in that world. Like you've, you've had, you know, really small scopes. We use the little Borg, uh, 250 millimeter, like breaking the rule by twice. And, um, you know, yeah, they have a little bit of field curvature, but yeah, you have to live with that to get the benefits of those wide fields. And then with this scope, you have that ultra, ultra portability. So you kind of got to pick your poison. Yeah, sure. You can, I mean, you, you and I both have the big talks, but they're never going to like, like it's not, your talk TSA is never going to make it on that trip to Antarctica with you. <laughs> no, no, the TSA is definitely not, uh, portable in any way. Um, so yeah, having somewhat of the, the TSA 102 capability, not, not the same scopes for sure, but you know, that aperture is close. Um, I think it'll be pretty fun to, to use. Um, it also came with the, uh, the Borg super reducer, the 7872, uh, part number. It's quite well regarded. And I think you were involved in a CN thread years ago about potentially using that for visual, uh, observing. Um, it, you can, you know, I think, yeah, it can be used that, that it, it's expensive, but I did, I thought you bought one at one point in time. I did. I had one and I sold it because the way that like the, the way it works is it has to essentially like kind of like it has threads, so it screws in and it has to screw into the focuser. Um, it can't go before the focuser. It has to be inside the focuser essentially. Yeah. And the scopes that I had at that time didn't have a two inch focuser, so it wouldn't adapt. Like I couldn't use it properly. Um, now the Borg 90, because it has the two inch focuser, it can, it can, I can use that stuff the way it was intended. Uh -huh. Um, so because it comes with the seven, like, because it comes with that reducer, I will attempt to, uh, to see if I can make it work visually. Uh, cause I think it takes that focal length down to like 3.6 or four. four? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It takes it to four, but it makes it a Petzl. And then, um, but, you know, keep in mind, because it's a refractor, you know, you can still use your 30 millimeter. You lose a little bit of aperture, maybe. But you, you get such a huge field of view, right? Because four times 90. Whoa, what did I do there? Because that gives you like a 360 millimeter focal length. But at a 90 millimeter telescope, that is crazy. So even <laughs> if you use your 30, you know, yeah, sure. Like you might be stopping yourself down to an 80 point something mil but mm. holy smokes like an 80 millimeter at 360 is still a ridiculous wide field instrument mm -hmm. and i think that that reducer also flattens the field as well oh yeah yeah it's it's yeah. A, it's a like it's 100 percent a petzl at that point in time basically yeah, yeah not, so i'm not pretty cheap. excited for that too yeah. oh so am i that's like the that, that's like very very magical there because with your with your 30, well, 360 divided by 30s, 12, you know, basically that's, that's going to give you like almost like a six degree true field of view, 5.8, five and mm -hmm. three quarter uh, true mm -hmm. field with, uh, you know, essentially basically like 80 millimeter aperture with your eye, but holy smokes, that is, that's wild. Like that's a lot of 80 millimeters is a lot of aperture for almost six degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I'm excited to, to uh, start observing with it. And actually what, what's kind of interesting about the timing of this is I was starting to 
uh, and I messaged you a little bit about this, I think. I was starting to look at bino telescopes again. And there's a kit that you can buy uh, where like the binoscope is two Borg 90 FLs. Yep. And yep. Uh, I was very intrigued by that. And then all of a sudden this solo Borg uh, 90 FL appeared on the auction site. So, you know, I went for it and obviously was uh, successful. But, um, uh, you know, I think for now I'll, I'll park the bino telescope dreams and just enjoy uh, the Borg 90 when it comes. Yeah, I'm super excited for that. I think out of many of the scopes that you bought, I think I'm just about as, as excited about this one. Really hope I convince you to maybe bring that out one night. We'll have a have a go in the observatory with it because oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Holy smokes, that is a really really cool telescope. Yeah, really yeah. cool. I hope I hope so. Um, we'll see when it arrives, and hopefully it performs well. Yeah, I also have the TS flat one, right? Oh, we can yeah. try that in it as well if if you don't like it with the quad and because that should work per like that's almost like made for it too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that might be a must-buy accessory. We'll have to see. Well, you can just borrow mine. Um yeah, yeah. I don't even use it. I just bought it because I get it super cheap and brand new. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, with that threaded onto your um diagonal in there with the 30 yeah i I think with the 30 there i think you're going to be fine anyway i think that's going to give you a flat like a flat field enough that you're not going to want to futz with anything else right right okay well yeah we'll uh we'll give it a spin and see how it goes you said two days yeah january 2nd it arrives apparently so very good i'll keep my fingers crossed and I'll, I'll let good. you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'll, yeah. I'm really excited for that. Did it come with rings and a plate or? Everything. Yeah, it came with the uh, the Borg 80 millimeter rings. So they're super light. Uh, it came with the Borg, I think it's an Arca Swiss plate. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is quite uh, quite light. Um, and I oh, have I did, the... Just so you know, I did go in the archive and pull it. I did go and take a look at it after you bought it. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I had to. Yeah. Yeah. And it came with the helical focuser. Um, but I was able to purchase, uh, through another auction, the Borg, uh, two inch, two speed, uh, Crayford focuser. Okay. I'm curious so that's coming that on the same day too. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah, I'll have the, the complete package. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Cool. But you also have a very interesting purchase that I think I'm more excited for than my own <laughs> telescope. Actually, uh, you got a bit of a behemoth. Yeah, I got a big scope for the observatory back. Well, I mean, it seems a while ago now, but it's only been a month and, and you know, plus my time away, not even. Mm. Um, so it's only, it was only, I only had it for about two weeks since before we went on our break. And uh, yeah, so I bought a seven inch refractor. Yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> don't say that lightly because that's, it's, it's about the, lightest one you can get but it's it's a monster scope like once you get beyond five inch refractors even my five inch is big but seven inches is like it's big it's really really big yeah no that's uh (laughs) that's incredible um you know i've i've read about these large large telescopes uh i've never looked through a big refractor like this so i cannot wait uh to check it out um, and it's super unique, this telescope too. Like there's not many of these in the world, I think. Yeah. Apparently maybe as many as 10 
but possibly as few as five. I've been able to sort of track down five or six. So I think there's probably maybe 10. And uh, yeah, so what makes it unique is that it it is an acromat. It is not an apocromat, but it was made by, uh, or it was designed by a guy named Thomas Back of TMB Optical uh, about 15 or 16 years ago. And uh, it was produced, though, um, in association with APM Optical out of Germany, um, using components um, and manufacturing processes in both Japan and China. So it's uh, like real sort of, you know, using the best of sort of all countries, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to produce the telescope. And sort of either fortunately or unfortunately, like they, they were building it to a pretty high standard and they realized that they just couldn't build them to that standard uh, at a marketable price. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's not an inexpensive telescope, but it's nowhere near like, uh, you know, what a seven inch apocromat would be. It's in the range, I guess, now of like what a four inch apocromat would cost new, uh, except you've got the, uh, the seven inches there and it's got just regular um, glass, I think. Um, but it's uh, sort of like the best O'Hara, um, whatever it is, uh, you know, and crown flint matching elements and, you know, made to a very high polished standard and mm-hmm. all that kind of good stuff. But it's fast. And that's what I wanted. You know, I, I really gave it a lot of thought. Originally, as you know, Shane, my plan was to get an 11 inch Smith Cassegrain. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do everything that Mark Radici does and uh, <laughs> no, no, but Mark, Mark has been very uh, supportive and helpful over the years to me. Yeah. And he's, and he has the AZEQ six and he runs, I think he runs like a very nice setup with an 11 inch McCassigan. And then he had his 90 millimeter um, William optics on the side. I was like, that's a really, that I think that's really like an ideal setup, but you and I kept talking about the fact that here in Saskatchewan and like yesterday's prime example, beautiful day, three degrees. And now at night it's minus 18 with the wind chill. And, you know, I, I think the, the Schmidt Cassegrain is just going to struggle in that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I know it will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you would need to come up with a, a creative way to, um, you know, cool off that scope, like to cool off a Cassegrain here. Um, otherwise it just takes so long for, for the telescope to catch up to the temperatures around it. Um, which is, you know, why I even stopped with my reflectors to a certain point. Cause I felt like they were always playing catch up throughout mm. the night when we had big temperature swings and certainly the refractors do as well, but you know, they just do it faster. So I, I've enjoyed that aspect of it, uh, of refractors, you know, I, for, for quite a while now. And to be honest, I got enough problems to deal with, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, but, but, you know, like you said, you, you can deal with it, but, you know, I got a laundry list of challenges with the observatory and I, you know, apologize again to you because I think I killed the first five minutes of today because I had a call from the builder. We're, you know, working on other stuff here at the cabin. I got frozen pipes here again this morning. Um, you know, I got, I got problems that need to be fixed. I'm not a real super handy kind of person anyway. So I'm way in over my head as it is to, to take on a scope that I know I'm going to have to start troubleshooting, you know, out of the box Mm -hmm. and just even getting the AZEQ six running the way I want a huge challenge. So taking on another project, like I, I was just like, I'm out, 
I'm just not even going to get a scope. So mm-hmm. I decided I wasn't going to get a scope. I'm just going to use the five inch. And so I thought, well, I've got the five inch here. I've got all the stuff for it here. And, you know, just in preparation for the observatory, I'm just going to start using it more. It was typically me using the four inch Takahashi. And uh, so as I was using, it, I was really, really loving it, you know, a little bit more resolution, a little bit more light than the four inch. And I just really like that F6 focal ratio. So a, a person put a, a seven inch TMB F6 up for sale down in North Carolina or somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I saw that go up and I was like, huh? Cause in the back of my mind, everybody always says, Chris, you're a big refractor guy, but I'm not cause all my refractors are small. And I th- always thought, you know, I should get a big refractor when I have an observatory, but then I only designed the observatory to take, you know, sort of a maximum of 1200 millimeter. Cause I thought maybe I'll get one of the six inch apocrymats, but again, I think the five inches too close and, you know, whole variety of reasons. So I'll just stick with five inch. I like the wide fields, right? Mm-hmm. So at F6 though, it's really like a nice, just over a thousand millimeter and big aperture seven inches for a refractor. People say basically it's like you get about the light grass feels like you're looking through a really, really good, like nine and a quarter inch, um, Schmidt cast green for, uh, for light gathering, but sort of with the refractor benefit slash uh, pretty close to like a 10 inch reflector, um, which in the observatory, you can't really put a reflector the way that I have it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's by design um, because I wanted walls that were high enough to block the wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You would, you know, for, for a reflector to work, I think in there, you'd almost need, like it would have to be on an EQ mount. And now you're talking a, like a very, you know, heavy capacity uh, mount that would be required. And, and then like the eyepiece placement with a reflector on an EQ mount, I think becomes a little challenging too. Yeah. And people have put, people have put 10, even 12 inch scopes on that AZEQ6. So mm-hmm. I, I had thought about an eight or a 10, but then that that eyepiece placement is just mm-hmm. like even on the refractor sometimes and i i still have uh still have an inch or so to go because i have some more flooring in that to put into the observatory um you know it, it's fine um with the bigger refractor though that eyepiece is going to swing down a little lower so i think it's going to be ideal for the seven inch and um i'd sort of been thinking about that like with the four inch eyepiece definitely is getting a bit high the five inch is okay um just the way that the telescope sits i think with the uh i think with that uh seven inch though that is really really gonna put the eyepiece at a sweet spot and then you get that benefit of of the wind blocking because here it's critical you know i think it it's the idea of having building the observatory the best way possible and then figuring out what telescope is going to work in it. And I, I know of people who've done the opposite. Most people have a telescope and they sort of fit the observatory to that. Um, but uh, Melody Hamilton, 
in Nova Scotia. She she built a, an observatory first, and uh, always joked about that. But I think that is kind of in a way like a smart thing to do, because if if I had really been fixated on a particular telescope, I think that I wouldn't have built it this way, or I shouldn't even say built me build it. My my builder built it to um, my specifications with his modifications. And it's really nice because last night it was, you know, uh, minus 11, minus 18 with the wind chill. But in the observatory, it's still just minus 10, you know, mm-hmm. barely mm-hmm. minus. It's just touch of minus 11. And you can have your gloves off and be working on stuff and, you know, mode for three hours in it. Well, you know what it would be like out on the open field or hilltop or whatever at minus 11 with uh, like a 20 kilometer wind blowing. I mean, you just can't even be out for 15 minutes in that hardly. Mm-hmm. No, it, it like the wind will, will end in an observing session real fast. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You know, you got to think, you got to think through all that. Um, and yeah, so again, in the back of my head, I always thought it'd be really cool to have a big sort of big old acromat up in there. And, uh, when I was in Ontario, I went to the telescope museum, the Dorner telescope museum that, uh, our, our friend Randall runs mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, just like looking at the telescope, I was like, man, like, it'd be nice. Like what, what telescope sort of d- would define my observing to be in a museum, right? Sort yeah. of laughing about that. And I was thinking, yeah, like a big, big, fast refractor. So, you know, I kind of started warming up to the idea and then before I wrote the guy, uh, there is a guy in Canada that had one. I say had one now because that's the one I end up buying. And his was in mint. Just a section. I got to take a little bit of a cough. I don't want to cough in your ear. Yeah, so this this person is on the other side of the country. But I wrote them and said, hey, like, how do you, like, your, like your version of this? Like, what's it like? And we went back and forth on email. And, well, we didn't go back and forth on email at all, actually. All he wrote back is said, call me. And... <laughs> I'd been on the phone, like doing the observer's calendar and going to meetings and on zoom. And I was like, I don't want to call and talk to anybody else on a zoom call or a phone call. I just, I don't mind emailing, but I'm just like, you know, I need my Christmas vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I finally thought, oh, I, I should give him a ring. Cause I don't know. I, I feel bad if somebody takes the time to write back and then just does ask me to call. So I did call them and they said that uh, they wanted to sell it to me. They thought I should have that scope. And and I didn't disagree, but I said, I'm, I don't know how serious I am, blah, blah, blah. So he kind of channeled me in that direction. It took about a week or two. And then, and then yeah, the scope, uh, the scope arrived. Um, but he... He didn't match the guy's price. He actually under he he sold it to me for less than that person was selling their scope for down in the states, and that was a huge selling feature for me because you know it's in Canadian dollars, so I don't have to do the exchange dance because I think you lose like several percent or something, Shane, when you do that. Yeah, um, typically, yeah. Which is a lot when you're into this kind of money for a telescope, and then. Uh, so he was gonna, this is the the bad part. This is the bad everything. There's always something bad, right? Mm-hmm. And the bad part was that he hadn't, and it was somebody that you dealt with before, and he's yep. he's really good. 
I'm not knocking him. It's not his fault what happened at all. He just hadn't sold as much stuff since the pandemic. And the place that he used to use to uh, to ship out of, um, he went to and it was no longer, like you couldn't ship big spots. It was still like a, whatever it was, a UPS drop or a FedEx drop. I can't remember which it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you couldn't like take like a giant telescope to ship. And it and he, it was really nice because he had it like in a big, not like a hard case, but it's like one of those soft cases with hard walls and that. So, you know, anyway, so he trucked it down to them. But uh, what he ended up doing is having to drive to another city to mm-hmm. ship it from. And then when he got there, uh, they were super busy and he ended up kind of dropping it there for shipment. And I hadn't really looked into how much it would cost to ship a seven inch refractor. I thought, I don't know, it's going to be into the hundreds of dollars. I know that mm-hmm. so I was thinking, but no, no, it was, it was a lot. Like it, even just to get the cheapest shipping was a lot, a lot of money, more mm-hmm. than what I had anticipated. So yeah. uh, anyway, basically I ended up buying somebody a plane ticket to fly it out to me and it came here safe and sound, but that's that's about the cost of what it cost to ship. It was as if I had bought you a plane ticket. I would have rather to buy you a plane ticket chain to fly out, pick it up, and bring it back. But we we didn't get our our ducks in a row for that. Yeah. Oh man, it was yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. So when do you think first light will be with this uh, highly anticipated telescope? Yeah, it's it's going to be a while, and that's like my yeah. reluctance. I've been reluctant to met mention it in the previous episodes it'll be this year but it won't be anytime soon um and there's several reasons for that one the aforementioned uh multitude of projects that are on the go mm-hmm. like it's just you know way too many things and i'm switching jobs kind of and what else well the observatory is it's closer to being done now but uh, we have to we have to figure out, we have to reinforce the pier or possibly even replace the pier. It, it's it got a little bit of vibration. The other thing I was working on, and I got more or less sorted out last night, is the mount up in the observatory. Mm-hmm. And I, I was having trouble getting it to, uh, to point and track the way that I want it. it just, I'm just not used to using a uh, like a go-to mount or anything like that. So that's been a learning curve for me. I've spent several nights out there. I need to spend several more nights with that before I, I load a massive telescope on there. And um, as well, I'd be reluctant, you know, to leave it out here for sort of months on end in the, in the middle of winter. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm still out here quite a bit, but I think probably what I'll do is just wait until, uh, until the spring. And once we get a few more things done in the observatory, when the uh, ground thaws out, then, yeah, I think that's that's sort of the timeline is probably like June. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm excited for it. Um, so, you know, whenever it happens, I will uh, be anxious to look through it. Yeah, I'm pretty excited just because I really like that focal range, the F6 in a refractor, like the idea of having that much gathering. And it kind of optimizes several things because I found anyway, that the atmosphere often holds about 180 magnification. 
Yeah, and, yeah, I would agree too. That's typically my experience. Yeah, and with that scope, you know, you're at one millimeter exit people. It's exactly 180 millimeters, and um, as well because it is pretty lightweight. Still, 25 pound OTA, and then there's eight pounds of uh, other materials on it. Um, should still cool pretty quick, and because with the refractor, see the light is only passing once through the system. The other thing is this refractor has an oversized OTA. So even though it's fairly lightweight, mm -hmm. it actually is pretty big. Um, and it's got big baffles in it. So the the, the heat that, that is remaining in it um, is a little bit more easily dispersed and it's not going to sit. The worst part of it isn't going to sit in the optical path. So mm -hmm. one of the challenges with the schmidt grains is that the light is bouncing back and forth a few times. So any bit of um, heat that's retained in the scope, giving you what looks like bad seeing or, you know, what is heat telescope is sort of compounded, unfortunately, as well. And here, that's just amplified just because of our environment, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, similar design to the TSA 102. It, the, the, the 102 has an oversized uh, optical right. tube as well, which helps with those currents, but it, it does also improve uh, contrast. And you and I noticed that, eh? like, mm -hmm. like that was something that was on my mind as well, is this telescope has a similar design to that. Although it is an acromat and it's big, um, you know, I think, I think the cooling should be pretty good. Like my five inch cools really, really fast and um, it's set up to cool out there. So I think, I think it should work very well. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited to have seven inches of, uh, of full clear aperture to take a look at stuff. I figure, you know, that, that is a nice size, really big achromatic refractor to have in the observatory up there. It feels kind of feels right to have that for me anyway. Yeah. Well, this is, to me, this is the ideal situation. Like you build an observatory to house a telescope that is really not that transportable. And, yeah. you know, a seven inch refractor is starting to get into that category of, you know, really not a portable telescope. Um, so I think it's, it's just perfect for your, your setup there. And, you know, it, it should fit the observatory quite well. And, you know, I think you're going to, uh, get decades of enjoyment out of that telescope. Yeah, I think, I think for sure. Yeah. And the observatory is working. It is working really well. Uh, I am just reluctant to put I, when I went from the four inch, so the, my first testing in the observatory, I put the four inch up, everything worked. And I was like, man, next time I'm going to put the five inch, the next time I'm going to put the seven inch. And, um, I put the four inch up. I decided to do another session with a four inch and I smashed my hand with it just because, and I was like, huh. And like, I really did kind of smash my hand and that telescope weighs six pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of was like, uh, oh Yeah you kind of noticed it. Right. But I think probably if it was like 35 pounds of telescope, that might've um, been a bad bruise or I might've like broken a bone in my hand. Right. Yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, I got to be a little bit more careful with this. this is like working on a whole different scale here. Like that mount is really big. You know, it's got 35 pounds of mass on it and it's easy to misjudge. The other thing I want to do is I'm not so keen to put a seven inch refractor into the saddle plates that are there for the, for the four inch, they're fine. I got no reservations. The five inch they're okay. 
seven inch though i'm not putting the seven inch in those so i gotta buy new saddle plates i got a problem with one of the other saddle plates i think i want to get a different counterweight um there's some other you know futzy things i want to do in the observatory before i start putting a seven inch refractor in there because that's you know when you put that up it's not like you just oh we'll put it up for an hour and then take it down it's it's you know it's a lot to to install even the five inches significantly more than the four and the seven inches just like i mean it's just a completely different scale all altogether than any other telescope i've ever owned mm -hmm. yeah yeah probably uh a few things to learn along the way i would imagine but yeah uh, you know worth it in the end for sure yeah i'm pretty excited you know to have uh the observatory and last night was just such a great uh it was such a great um experience to to have like the cabin all warmed up and the the observatory running and uh all cooled down um and you go up and there was like like i said it was just the steady like 15 20k wind um again enough just to scrub a session um mm -hmm. pretty quick and to be able to go in there and with the gloves off most of the time and at minus 11 um just be monkeying around for a few hours in there and uh working out the kinks in the system um yeah that felt really good and then you know once or twice i got cold came down for five or ten minutes in in the cabin got warmed back up head back out you really feel like you can you can get a lot of pretty serious observing it and i was kind of frustrated last night which for me being frustrated and observing they don't they don't mix so mm -hmm. i almost just want to just stop doing it because to me that's not what astronomy is about so i uh you know, was able to kind of persevere and, uh, and kind of get through, uh, that next hump. And yeah, I think for sure, even at minus, you know, 12 minus 15, I think I should ease the people do like five, six hours in a night on a winter night, um, should be pretty doable. Um, so I'm really, really excited for, for the possibilities that, uh, that having this setup opens up. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Looking forward to some first late reports uh, with the big scope whenever that happens. Yeah, when you got the Borg, though, I mean, we should definitely bring it out because that observatory, I mean, it's got tons of space in it. We can just like take that up. We can throw it on the mount, put it on a tripod, whatever you want, and be in there because you're you're enclosed, except you see 95% of the sky from in there. So mm -hmm. you can be out and away from the wind and, and two long, long sessions in the winter right so that's uh that's open to you i'd, yeah. I'd love to take yeah, a look through great. that yeah. yeah i think it'd be a lot of fun so my voice held out pretty uh decently this time eh? yeah yeah did well he is is the magic elixir i guess so well keep keep drinking the tea all right so what's the first thing you're going to look at when you get your uh you get your 90 millimeter running mm, good question i probably will play around in some big open clusters, um, maybe the Pleiades, um, maybe Malat 20, just, uh, big star fields, I think is what I'll look at, uh, the first, first few objects at least. And I'll probably look at Jupiter as well, just to see how it does with, um, you know, I, I expect at that focal ratio, there'll be some false color that probably shows up, but I'll put it through its paces. Um, yeah. the thing I'm most interested in is just, uh, if it will, you know, I guess sort of meet my expectations or standards on a real lightweight setup. I'm yeah. not sure if my lightweight mountain, uh, tripod will be enough, 
I hope it is. And if it is, then uh, I'll be just over the moon, uh, pun intended, uh, with excitement because uh, then it really is the ultimate grab and go. Yeah, I think like Barnard's loop in that scope mm. is going to yep. be killer, but you don't have the two inch H beta. Do you, uh, or do you? No, mine is just inch and a quarter. Mm. I'll have to try that out when you come mm. out. You put that yeah, two inch H beta and take a run through Orion. Oh, man. Like, yeah, that'll, that'll be pretty nice. There's a lot. There's a lot. Like, there's some big, huge extended nebulae up past the Pleiades. And uh, I think I see 353, something like that. Mm -hmm. That scope, that will be nothing to see in that scope. And I see 1396. Oh, there's so much. Like, mm -hmm. the you think about the, um, like, the veil is three and a half degrees across. You've got not twice that size, but almost six degrees. So think about that, like you'll get the veil and, uh, you know, lots of room around it. That's, that's crazy to think about. Yeah, you know? it really is. Especially if I can get that reducer working visually. Um, wow. It'll be something else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I got, I got Eric texting me here. So he, I sent him a photo of my setup yesterday and he thought he was like, oh, is that the seven inch? I'm like, no, that's just the five, the, like the five inches, a big scope, right? Mm -hmm. and uh but when the seven inch goes in there i think it's gonna look pretty uh ridiculous but uh yeah should still be some room left in there for me and and one other lucky person so yeah yeah awesome all right i think i am losing my voice now though maybe we should wrap her up shane yeah i think that's enough for this one all right well thanks everybody for listening um be sure to subscribe, share the show with other stargazers you know, and you can send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>